copy of the sermon notes. They're going to be on the back long table, the BLT, and so you can get those right now. And also we'll have uh, the notes on the screen behind us, we should say. All right. Well, as we begin this morning, I want you to know that I had like a 20-page manuscript and I had to reduce it down greatly because I wasn't preaching the whole book of Romans today. I was supposed to just preach an intro and an overview. So, okay, we're, we're starting off good this morning. But as we begin Romans, um, I want you to think about this amazing book with me. Uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul around AD 57 to the church at Rome. It has how many chapters? Anybody know? What does it say? 16, does somebody say that? If you said 16, you're right, which makes it the longest of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote. Roman takes about a, how long to read or listen to? What do you think? If you're going to sit down and read it all the way through in one sitting, how long does it take? With or without understanding, Joel says. Are we speed reading? What are we doing? It takes an hour, okay? So I tried it this week as I was preparing because the best way to get into any book of the Bible is usually to read the whole thing through once so you kind of know the context. So as I was preparing, I sat down and I couldn't do the whole hour at once because it was something going on, but I sat down and listened to the first 30 minutes on my earbuds while I read it. And then the next sitting, I read it and listened to it and finished the rest of the book. So you can read it in about an hour. I encourage you to do that. So as we're going to be looking at this, uh, in certain churches, they've preached Romans for 12 years. Yeah, it took them 12 years to go through it, okay? One pastor I was listening to uh, last week, he did the whole sermon, uh, the whole uh, book in one sermon. So that's pretty cool. We're going to try to hit the middle, okay, <laughs> as we look at it. Now, we're going to try to cover it in about a year, um, <clears throat> But Romans is a theological masterpiece, okay, as people think about it compared to other books in the Bible, and yet it's very, very practical, and you're going to see both of those things as we go through the book of of Romans, and the reason that this is is because it is the most complete and systematic presentation of the gospel in the entire Bible, right? Paul takes pains in the first eight chapters of Romans to unpack these deep foundational truths we call the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection to redeem and save sinners. And he unpacks, as he unpacks the gospel, he mentions really lofty ideas and concepts like faith, grace, redemption, justification, propitiation, sanctification, election, and predestination. But the reason why Romans is so practical is that throughout the book, and especially in the last four chapters, chapter 12 through 15, Paul unpacks the detailed way in which he knows the gospel will transform our lives. Did y'all get that part right? The gospel might transform our lives? No, the gospel will transform our lives for all who actually believe it, right? That's his point. The gospel makes a difference in the everyday Okay, so if you're in here and you're like, I'm going to be comfortable as we go through Romans, it's going to be easy. You know, I'm going to hear you preach and I'm going to go home and keep on doing what I'm doing, right? I'm going to keep on fighting with my wife. I'm going to keep on having beef with people at work that are not like me. This is not a safe place for that, okay? It's not going to happen. <laughs> the, the, the gospel will not allow that to happen. As Paul opens up the book, he tells us again and again, it is the power of God to save people. And that doesn't just mean it enters them into salvation, through the door of salvation. That is true. But the gospel is so powerful that you can't shake it for the rest of your life. It follows you all the way until your death. 
and it shapes the way you live in the present and what you hope for in the future. It's the gospel of God's amazing grace. Romans 12 through 15, like I mentioned, the gospel believed actually causes you to present your bodies in a different way. You start surrendering and waving the white flag over everything in your life to God. The gospel believe empowers us to love others genuinely. That's what we're talking about with Martin Luther King Day. We're thinking that the gospel where people believe it causes Christians to unite and genuinely love each other, to hate evil, and to hold fast to what is good. The gospel believed changes the way we even eat and drink because we start doing even the mundane things, the things that you say, the gospel has no bearing on the way I drink orange juice or if I eat meat, or how I do it. No, the gospel changes everything because you begin to do it in view of doing everything for the glory of God and not for self. For Paul, the goal of the Christian life in reading Romans isn't merely correct theology or being able to spell predestination. And everybody said, amen. Or as my father-in-law calls it, pre-for-ordelectinated. That's, that's his... He's coined that phrase. Paul's coined that phrase. Pre for order See, God wants this high and holy gospel to impact our relationship with him first, right? But does he want it to stop, stop there? Does he? No. He wants it as a result to impact our relationships with everyone else. The people are that, that are most different than us. The gospel is the power of God to save but don't truncate your understanding of what it means to save someone, right? So what's Romans about? Well, if you said gospel, you were definitely correct. But one of the main themes Paul uses to communicate this gospel story that he actually starts to unpack in Romans 1, 1 through 7, the word he uses to communicate this gospel story in those 16 chapters of Romans is the word righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. Okay, now the word righteousness is mentioned in chapter 1, and then like 30 more times after that, which makes us one of the main themes in the book. And actually, I didn't really realize that when I first started digging into it, okay? Um, But it can mean that word can mean several different things, like God's justice or God's gifted status to those who believe or God's faithfulness to save like he promised all down those years, starting from Adam or starting from Abraham to work his good will to save and rescue a people. But context determines all of that. But as we walk through Romans today in this sermon, I want us to follow the righteousness thread okay, from chapter 1 to chapter 16 or so. And I want us to follow the the righteousness thread by using this righteous outline that I found in the ESV study Bible, okay? That's probably the only way that the word's not used in Romans. (laughs) But as we go, I'm kind of going to jump ahead one in the outline that we're going to throw on there, and we're just going to kind of work through it. And where I want to start this morning, you put the slide up, Brett. I want to start with God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. And that's chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. So Paul starts out with a universal problem. And what's the universal problem? You guys tell me. It's the second one right there. What is it? Yep, sin. Romans 1.18. You can follow along. If you have your Bible, you can actually just track with me and turn the next page to the section if you want to. So 
I'm going to read several texts of Scripture today. Romans 1.18, God's wrath is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, here's the word, un, what? Righteousness of men who by their, here's the word, unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what Paul is arguing for is that God is entirely right or righteous, we could say, in judging sinners. As one author put it, we grossly underestimate the gravity and offensiveness of our sin in the light of God's infinite majesty, holiness, and justice. When we sin, we aren't sinning against someone like us. Did you ever think about that before? We're not. We're sinning against a God who's perfect. Think on that for a minute. A God who's completely good. He's all-powerful. He is sovereign over every detail of history and every molecule. And he is holy, 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 holy. And when humanity is born into sin and we sin against God in our actions and choices, we're sinning against the greatness and majesty of God. And because God is holy and just, what must he do? He must punish sin, right? He can't simply, an author says, sweep it under the rug or forgive and forget. The Bible reveals God's unflinching commitment to the glory and honor of his name. The bookends of Romans chapter three, I mean chapter one, and then chapter 16 reflect this. There is a common theme and it is that God is glorious, that all of salvation is about this God and he deserves all glory. And when we sin, we make a mockery of that God. And Paul will take the time to show as he tracks through Romans 1 to 3-ish to show that Gentiles, the nations, like Pastor Eric was saying, all the nations are, who are without the law of God, they're unrighteous, right? And the Jews who have the law of God, are they righteous? No, they are also unrighteous. And everyone else you think we left out, when we name those, name those two categories, they're also all unrighteous. Romans 3.10 says there are, what you tell me, there are none righteous. No, not one. Hey, you guys have been brushing up on your Romans road before we got started. Some of you guys are getting a little rusty on that scripture memorization. Okay, none righteous. No, not one. And not only that, but in Romans 3.20, Paul will say this, by the works of the law, no human being will ju be justified in God's sight. That is, we can't make up for our failures. We can't earn our justification before God. All of mankind is found guilty in the court of God's law. We are unified in that. This means God, when he judges humanity, he remains righteous when he condemns us. It's actually what he must do if he's holy and righteous. This means, this is so fascinating, I read this this week, this means we don't just need to be saved from our sin, which is true. That is true, right? But the way Paul lays out Romans, this reminds us that there is a dilemma that most of us have never even thought about before. You know what the dilemma is? We need to be saved from God's justice. We need to be saved from God's holiness. You could say it another way. We need to be saved from God's righteousness because if he's a just judge, what's he gonna do? He's gonna judge sin right? Most of you guys are scare, staring at me right now like I have a third eye, okay? I know this is contrary to what our culture teaches us, but it's the truth of God's word. 
And it might be, because you're looking at me like I have a third eye, it might be why you're not so jacked about the gospel, right? (laughs) Most of us just assume God is supposed to give us grace. Isn't that what he does? We actually don't realize the magnitude of grace. We don't realize the magnitude that in extending sinners grace, it doesn't cause God to be unrighteous. But why? Why not? How come when God extends sinners grace, it doesn't cause God to be unrighteous? That's the argument that's flowing through Romans. Leads me to my next point, the saving righteousness of God, chapter 321 through 425. How can God look at sinners, bang the mallet, and fairly say, forgiven? That's the question Paul wants to ask. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, don't miss this. We can't become righteous because we all sin. None of us are perfect. The law reveals our sins and condemns us. So how is the revealed righteousness of God received? Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here, here it is. Faith, trust, links us to Jesus, the perfectly and only perfectly righteous one. Does that make sense? We participate in Jesus's standing of perfect righteousness in the sight of God through faith. Upon faith, the sinner is immediately and completely justified before God. It's a wonderful thing. Righteousness becomes our objective position before God that can never change. People say it like this, justified. They say justified when a person believes is just as if we've never sinned. And just as if we've always obeyed because of Jesus. Is this not a glorious truth? It is. As one author put it, the weakest believer and the strongest saint. Think about those two people in your life. You're like somebody who's been a believer for a long time and they're really godly. You're thinking who? Billy Graham, right? When he was around, right? And you think about that dude who just got saved last week and you're like, his life is still a mess. It's still a wreck. And this author says, the weakest believer and the strongest saint Saint alike are equally justified before God because of faith in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? The author says justification has no degrees. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. Those are the two categories you've got. And how is this revealed righteousness provided? Paul goes on in that text to say it is made possible through the gracious act of Jesus on the cross, right? We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the cross to be received by faith. So think about this fact if you never thought about it before. In the gospel, God's justice is satisfied. Why? Because he pours it out on Jesus on our behalf, right? And in the gospel, God's love is also satisfied. What do I mean by that? God gets to be loving. He wants and desires to love sinners. He wants to bring a people to himself and he gets to do both in the cross because 
In the cross, Jesus dies on our behalf and we receive his life. But also in the cross, God gets to love sinners and bring them to himself. He does this through the cross, Romans 3, 26. God shows his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, the text says, both just and the what? Justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And both those things happen in the cross of Christ. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but the first Martin Luther, you guys remember him? Protestant Reformation, ring any bells? Famous ex-Catholic turned Protestant reformer spoke of the glories of justification by faith alone after coming to understand the meaning of Romans 1.17. And, and until that, he was a very, very troubled and tormented young man. But Luther writes, as he begins to grasp the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone, he says, I labor diligently and anxiously as how to understand Paul's words in Romans. The expression, the righteousness of God blocked the way because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. You see how that can be a block, <laughs> right? That you can't get over, I, I'm not righteous, I can't get over that block, right? And then he says, although I, an impeccable monk, I love that phrase, <laughs> just wanted to say it today, impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, that means all of his religion, all of his good works, all of his self-flatulation, all of his prayers in his prayer closet, he still realized that he stood before God as a great sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured and complained against him. And that's what he says in his journal. Then I grasped something different, something new that I didn't understand. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Isn't that beautiful? Thereupon, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. I broke through and as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. That's what he has to say about justification by faith. So Romans 1 through 3, Paul shows us God who judges our sin in Christ and in doing so vindicates his holy name. God gives those who believe the gospel, Jesus's righteous record, and in so doing so justifies us in his holy presence. And then in chapter 4, Paul wants to show us that this justification by faith, apart from works, justifying sinners, is how God has always been doing it since the beginning of time. And you're like, really? I heard somewhere that God saved people in the Old Testament by works, but in the New Testament, God saves them by faith in Jesus. Is that true? No. Paul wants to show us that God's been operating this way since the beginning, since even with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And he makes Abraham exhibit A in his argument. The proof in the justification by faith pudding isn't that good? You want to eat that. That's good stuff. Abraham's righteous standing before God came before circumcision. It, became, it came before the law was even a thing. The law hadn't even come into being yet. God made Abraham a promise and Abraham just believed it. 
against all odds. He said, God said it. It's true. It's going to happen. And it says in Romans that God took that faith that Abraham had in his promise and he counted it or he credited it to him as what? Righteousness. Romans 4.22, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted as righteousness. And if this is how Abraham was saved back then, right, at the beginning, then this is how everyone will be saved from that point on, except our faith's object is not the promise of descendants like it was for Abraham. Our faith's object is Jesus the promised descendant of Abraham who would come and save us. That's the hope of the gospel. And as we move on into chapter five through eight, Paul begins to show us that the hope that justification by faith offers is both a present and a future hope because justification by faith always bears fruit, right? So you don't just say, hey, I was justified by faith the day I believed God. And you know what? It doesn't have an impact on the rest of my life. It does. It gives you hope. Hope as a result of righteousness by faith. That's the next heading, 5.1 through 8.39. So justification by faith gives us hope. Paul will unpack because it links us to the new Adam, Jesus Christ. You're like, what? The new Adam? What does that mean? Well, the problem is that all people are born into the old first Adam, right? You guys heard that before? We sin in Adam, and therefore we die for the guilt of Adam's sin. But because of the good news of the gospel, you can be united and linked to the new Adam, the truer Adam, Jesus Christ. And instead of standing, standing guilty and condemned because of Adam's disobedience, Paul argues, that we can stand forgiven in Jesus's perfect obedience as, as the new Adam. And it's not just as an individual. In Jesus, we are linked to every person who has believed this gospel and we are united to Jesus together. Romans 5.18 says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Men, see, justification as a legal declaration and sanctification as an internal moral transformation should never be mixed up in our mind. What do I mean by that? They're distinct, but they're not inseparable. This means when you get justified by faith the day you believe the gospel, its fruit always follows in sanctification. What does that mean in layman's terms? It means if you believe the gospel, it's gonna change your life. It's gonna change how you think, how you believe, how you look at the present, how you look at the future. It's gonna change your life. The reason why justification by faith does more than change your legal status before God is because justification by faith links you to the very life of Jesus. The day you believe and you are justified before God in status, the spirit of God comes to live within your heart and transform you for the rest of your life. At conversion, Jesus' spirit immediately comes to dwell in you, begins to transform you in this lifelong process we call sanctification. Is one day gonna have an end to it? Yet what do we call that? Glorification. And we'll stand perfectly righteous in God's sight, transformed totally into the image of God. And this is what Paul wants to show us through Romans 6. He wants to say, because of 
the gospel, we've been set free from sin, Romans 6, 18, and have become a slave of, you know what the word says? Righteousness. He's unpacking the hope that we can live in the power of Christ because Christ has set us free from our fallen nature. You know what Paul's saying? When you say, I have to keep on sinning, you know what Paul says? You know, you know what Paul says? He said, you don't. When you say, I've always done it like this way, I'm always gonna mess up and do it like this. You know what Paul says? By the power of the Spirit living in your life, you don't have to. You don't have an excuse anymore. You got Jesus, right? When you say, I'm just gonna go on sinning because I know God's gonna keep on being gracious. Is he gonna keep on being gracious to his people? Yeah, but do you have to go on sinning? No, that's Paul's argument. There's not a hopelessness there because God has set us free from our sins because of his great righteousness. And the future that's coming for God's people is amazing. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified, Romans 8.30. So sanctification, this big theological word that means God's transforming us progressively into the image of Jesus It always breaks through and leads to glorification. God finally perfecting us. His work is complete. We stand before him in heaven. No more sin. And Paul is saying that day is coming. And this means that whether you're looking back to the the day of your conversion or you're looking to the present right now or several years from now or you're looking to the second coming, you can always live in hope. Did you realize that? Because of the gospel. You can suffer in hope. Paul wants to say that right? The, the gospel is for sufferers, right? Romans 8, get into that. You can suffer in hope and you can understand that you can die in hope because the righteousness by faith that God brings will bear its fruit in both the present and in the future. Fourth, God's righteousness to Israel and to the Gentiles. Then Paul begins to change gears in the overview that I'm giving you from Romans 9 to 11. And let's just be honest. In most churches, if they're working through the book of Romans and they're teaching through it, when they get to Romans 9, they just skip it. (laughs) Even that whole section, they're like, let's just skip it. We'll jump back in in Romans 12. We'll present our bodies as a living sacrifice. (laughs) That's a lot easier. Not, Not really, right? But here's what's happening in Romans. Paul wants to prove God's righteous in his dealings with all people regardless if we think he is. Jew, Gentile, individuals, God's always right. So in the openings of Romans 9, it's like God is being put on this hot seat again. And Paul foresees some may not think God is just or righteous in the way he's chosen to deal with the Jews or Gentiles and even specific individuals throughout salvation history. Paul's pointing out that God has retained for himself a portion of ethnic Jewish people through his sovereign election. And Paul makes an analogy in chapter nine between Jacob and Esau in which Jacob receives the blessing of election and Esau is passed over. And Paul anticipates this. Some people are gonna be like, "Eh, eh, 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 hey, 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 God's not fair. God, I know the salvation deal is your thing. I know it's all about your glory. And if you hadn't, if you hadn't broke through and come into salvation history and you hadn't died and raised to give us new life and you hadn't moved by your spirit to justify me and bring me into sanctification and the promise of glorification is coming, I know it wouldn't happen, but God, I don't like what you're doing. And he anticipates that they're gonna say, God, not fair. In Romans 9, 14, I remember this. 
I was in college. I was wrestling against this election thing. And I'm like, what in the world is this stuff, this nonsense? And then I remember reading Romans 9, 14, and it just kicked my bottom. Can I say that, kids? Can I say that in church? It kicked my bottom. Paul, anticipating this argument, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? You could say, is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul says, by no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. That is our determining or our doing. But Paul says salvation depends on God who has mercy. And I am so thankful God has mercy. And this divine electing mercy is available to all who would stop trying to establish their own righteousness and instead submit to the righteousness that God supplies in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a word for all of us this morning. And Paul's like, if that's true, you know what you should do with the gospel? You know what you should do with the gospel if that's true? Anybody know? Romans 10, what should you do with it? You should share it. Hello? If that, everybody's like, what do you do with it? I don't know. If that's, a, if that's the only hope-giving alternative out there, you know our world is trying to find hope in everything else. And if the gospel is the only way we can have reconciliation with Almighty God, and he can come and set us free from our sins, and he can unite us to his people savingly for an eternity starting now, transforming our very inward desires and heart's affections so that we love and we want to honor him and we want to be with this church and we want to give him glory and we want to praise his name and we want to get his word out, then Paul's like, we got to take this gospel out. Romans 10, you can't keep it to yourself. You got to take it and you read sections like this, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who what? Call upon him. Here's the promise for everyone who, what? Calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. What a promise. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're in here, if you're a little kid or, or an adult in here this morning, you've been in church for a long time or you've just come for the first time today, if you hear this wonderful news that I'm talking about, about justification before God by faith alone in Christ, not in your doing, not in your effort, not in your merit, not in checking and ticking the boxes of morality or religion, and you hear about a, a redeemer who can save you, he can save you from your sins and he can bring you to God, I want you to believe today. I want you to call upon him and say, I'm a sinner, Lord, I need you. I need your saving, justifying grace. Do that today. So then the question becomes in chapter 11, don't worry guys, we're almost done. If ethnic Israel's rejection of Christ opens the door to the nations receiving the gospel, is God done with ethnic Israel? Like, did he put them on the shelf? Is he completely done? And this is what Paul's response is. God has not and will not completely reject ethnic Israel. God has made, made saving promises to them. And even though the majority of the Jewish people rejected those promises. That's on them. But here's the thing. In God's continued mercy, he, had, he has always maintained for himself a believing remnant from the Jewish people. And Paul says, I'm exhibit A. That's what he actually does. He says, I'm proof in that pudding too. God saved me. I'm a Jew. 
And on top of that, God has continued to bring about much worldwide good by grafting in the nations through the brokenness of Israel's unbelief. God is, God's righteousness is still upheld. It's seen both in his plan and dealing with Jew and Gentile. And then God's righteousness in everyday life. I mentioned this before in chapter 12 through 15. Jesus's imparted righteousness enables us to surrender everything to God, Romans 12. And it makes the entire Christian community look different in the way we relate to others. They can love fellow Christians, love their enemies, submit to their government. Oops, did you guys read that? And to the degree that there is tension between weak and strong Christians over matters that God hasn't, hasn't clearly forbidden, we can still have mutual love for each other, right? Mutual acceptance and resulting unity through Jesus Christ, chapter 12 through 15 of Romans. We can live righteously by the Spirit because in the gray areas, what we do is we choose to love others by His Spirit. Paul says in Romans 14, 17 like this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of, here's the word again, righteousness and peace and joy in what? Your flesh? No, the Holy Spirit. Final point, the extension of God's righteousness through Paul's mission, chapter 15 to the close. So this is interesting. I'm gonna throw a map up on there because I know the heat came back on or my body's just hot. And uh, I don't have my laser pointer, but you guys see the big block at the top left that says Rome? You guys see that right there? So most people say that Paul wrote the gospel of Romans through Corinth. Can you see that right there? All right. You see Corinth right there? You see how far away Romans is up there? Now off the page to the left, you know what's there? Spain. And you know what's off the page to the right over here? Jerusalem. Okay. So at the end of Romans, Paul begins to explain a little bit about his travel plans. Okay. And he wants to go see the church in, you tell me, Rome, you're like, am I supposed to say Jerusalem? It was off the map. I don't know, right? <laughs> the interesting thing about the church at Rome is did Paul plant that church? No, he's actually never met anybody from it. He's like always talking about, I want to go and see you. I can't wait to meet you for the first time and have some fellowship with you. And most people think the church at Rome was actually planted or started by believing Jews who were coming back from Pentecost. Like they heard the gospel for the first time. They're ethnic Jews. And then they go back up to, to Rome and they plant a church. And if a Jewish person plants a church, how's the culture and the flavor gonna be? It's gonna be real Jewish. This is not complicated, okay? This is not rocket science. Everybody's wondering what I don't know. But along the way, the Jews shared the gospel most likely with the nations in Rome. And what happens when you share the the gospel, and it's the power to save, and it hits their hearts. What's going to happen? They're going to say, hey, can I come to your church? And you're like, yeah, you're a little bit different than me, but yeah, come on in. It's great. And so they begin to have fellowship together, both Jews and Gentiles or the nations. Until this happened in history, the ruler, Emperor Claudius, did what? He kicked out all the Jews of Rome. Kicked them all out. So the Gentiles were like, whoa, everybody's gone, and we're just here by ourselves in the church at Rome. And you know how long the Jews were out of Rome? Five years. Five whole years. That's a long time, right? Think about leaving Connection Fellowship and coming back five years later. Is it going to be a little bit different? Yeah, this was very different, most likely. 
So the Jews were allowed back into Rome about five years later in AD 54. And when they came back, they found a church most likely dominated by Gentiles that smelled a lot alike the Wendy's Baconator. You know what I'm saying? It smelled a lot like that, most likely. I'm just guessing. But here's the thing. Paul's writing them, and you see over and over, he understands this ethnic tension going on. He understands it. He even talks about it throughout the book. But this is what Paul thinks. He thinks that the gospel is powerful enough to produce unity in the church. Can you believe that? People with different... Can you believe that? The audacity of Paul. He thinks the gospel, the power of God to save is enough to bring unity in the church. Regardless of your background, your color, your race, like the way you grew up, if you grew up on the other side of the track, you know what I'm talking about, whatever. He thinks there's power enough to change and to bring everyone who's different into one new man. Jesus Christ. That's the category you're in now, okay? All those other categories, who cares? You're coming together in Jesus. All your differences, regardless of your age or whatever, you're coming together in Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And as one pastor writes, I love this quote, he says this, what unites Jewish and Gentiles believers is not their parents. Okay, so you think about, it's not the, Gent, uh, the Jewish parent of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, right? And it's not Arnold, whoever the Gentiles' grandfather was. I don't know. I'm just making up stuff right now. But what unites them is not their grandparents. It's their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes again and again that we aren't saved on the basis of our lineage or our blood relatives. Who cares if you're related to Abraham physically if you don't possess his faith? You guys understand what I'm saying? But our faith belongs to Jesus. It rests in the blood of Christ and from that foundation, Paul is building a unified church in Rome. That's his goal because he wants the church to explode and spread all around the world. That's his goal. And you say, are you making that up, David? No. In Romans 15, 14 through 33, Paul tells what he's, he's after. And, and I'm not making it up. He says, there's a reason why I'm coming to you. And he says this, I do want the fellowship but I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Literally what he's telling them in Romans 15, 24 is when I get there and we fellowship in the unity that Jesus brings, I'm gonna actually ask you to send me out to Spain. They've never heard the gospel before. They don't know this glorious news of justification by faith alone. They don't understand the message of the cross. And he's like, I'm going to be looking to you at Rome to support me and send me out. That's my goal. And Paul seems to be wanting a unified strategic partnership with this church at the center of the Roman Empire so he can successfully get the gospel out to the entire world. But this is what he knows. If they can't agree upon the gospel as their primary identity and life, to the minimization of all the secondary issues or factors, missions will be an impossibility. You guys know what I'm saying? If you're fighting in the church and you can't agree and you're not finding your oneness in Jesus, do you think you're gonna be telling a lot of people about the hope of the gospel? You're not. And that's where we are actually right now in our culture. 
the culture of our churches, right? We just infight all the time. We don't rally around Jesus and his gospel. And you know what suffers? The mission. The mission of the gospel. And Paul says unabashedly, is that a word? Unashamedly, maybe. He says, I want your unity. I want it for the glory of God. And I want it for the hope of the world that does not have Christ. I'm going to leave you with this section in Romans 15. Again, just to persuade you. He says, after he unpacks the hope of the gospel, Romans 15, 5, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about that unity together to bring the glory and honor to God that he deserves. That's why we're calling this this series Unified by God's Saving Righteousness. This is the hope of the gospel. And as we move into a time of prayer, into song, this is what I want to ask you. Number one, do you understand the heart of the gospel? Do you understand justification by faith? Are you celebrating that? Are you glorying in that in your life? Or do you think your salvation is based on your merit and your check boxes? I'm telling you, trust in Christ, even as a believer, again, that that's where it stands. Are you wrestling with things and saying, hey, look, this gospel has nothing to do with my present, my present hope, my sufferings? We're gonna read Romans 8 and you're gonna see it has everything to do. We can have hope because God's moving this world to a final conclusion, and along the way, he's not going to let you go, <laughs> right? You're, you're, you're centered in his love, and that's a hopeful thing, right? Is this gospel unifying you more to the, in, in lives, sorry, with others in your life who are Christians? As you read it, is, is the gospel and Romans making you more anti-others and making you think you're better than others, or is it drawing you into the unified hope that we have in Jesus? And you can see that in your marriage if you're a Christian, in your uh, fellowship with other people as a Christian, and in your church body. And finally, is this gospel that Paul's unpacking, whose heart is justification by faith alone, is it leading us to unity that leads to mission? Is it making us share the gospel more with non-believers? Is it getting us more jazzed about Pete and Jen Schottleitner and the Rob Ordays coming to share on the 28th and us saying, we have the gospel in common. We get to fund that gospel. You guys are doing what we're doing. You're doing it in it. And we get to be a part of that. Thank you for that partnership. You're a strategic place, not in Rome, but there in, East, in Asia to get the gospel out so that people can come to know him. Well, let's pray. And I'm gonna read us the final words of Romans or one of the final sections. To the holy wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the overview of Romans. I know it was a lot and there's so much that I skipped over, but we thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, I just thank you this morning that, Father, I know you and that I am found in you, Jesus, and that even though I've sinned so much, even last night and this morning, Lord, I stand justified before you because of Christ. 
and what he's accomplished. And I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, Lord, today they would believe and they would be saved. And Lord, that you could unify us even more than ever before in this church for the glory of your name as the mission goes out in Powdersville and all around the world in the hope of the gospel. Lord, we love you and pray it in Christ's name.